Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our short series on the imprecatory psalms. And here our men are going to be discussing some further elements of singing and praying imprecatory psalms, as well as looking specifically at Psalms 58 and 83. Please do check out those show notes. There is a link down there to our Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter. That contains the different liturgies that we use during our courses at Theopolis, as well as a few dozen psalms set to chant tones and an introduction to chanting, which would be a huge help to you as you learn to sing the psalms. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Trevor Lawrence, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Psalms 58 and 83. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and our special guest, Trevor Lawrence. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is a, a regular on the Theopolis Podcast, is occupied with a presbytery meeting today. And so he won't be joining us for this recording or for the next episode that we're recording a little bit later today. We also have Brian Motes, of course, who's running the recording and will edit it and clean it up and make sure that it's available to our audience. In the last couple of weeks, we started a short series on imprecatory psalms, and we discussed curses and imprecations in general in the opening episodes of this series. And today we want to talk about some specific imprecatory psalms. That's a classification of psalms. There's, there's uh, one way to, one category of psalms. We talked about uh, different categories of psalms in one of our earlier discussions, but uh, this is one category that uh, many scholars point to that uh, psalms are, certain psalms are dominated by curses or imprecations. And we're going to look at a few of those today. But I, before we do that, I wanted to open with this observation about the Psalter in general. I think uh, sometimes we can get fixated on on particular psalms that are especially especially mean spirited apparently especially tough that have curses that are very pointed and very alarming curses that are pronounced against the wicked uh, and we can miss the fact that imprecations and curses and prayers for judgment against the wicked are found all the way through the Psalter one uh, study of the imprecatory psalms concluded that about a fifth of the Psalms have some kind of imprecation or curse or prayer for judgment within it. So it's not a rare phenomenon in the Psalter. If we're going to, if we're going to avoid imprecations and curses and prayers for judgment entirely, then we're going to have to avoid the Psalter or radically uh, alter it. Let me just read a few of these uh, passages from Psalms that are not classified as imprecatory Psalms. They're not primarily imprecations. uh, And yet they, have resemblances to the imprecatory psalms that are embedded within other kinds of psalms. Uh, This is from Psalm 5, beginning in verse 8. David prays, O Lord, lead me in thy righteousness because of my foes. Make thy way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out for they are rebellious against you. And then uh, Psalm uh, 9, verses 19 and 20, the very end of Psalm 9. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before thee. Put them in thy fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Uh, The next Psalm, Psalm 10, verse 2. In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. 
let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. And then later in the Psalms, same Psalm, verse 15 of, chapter, of Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoers, seek out his wickedness until thou dost find none. Uh, Psalm 17, I'll close with this one. The, the last few verses of Psalm uh, 17. Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with thy sword. From men with thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly thou dost fill with thy treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with thy likeness when I awake. So in all of those, uh, in with various degrees of clarity and directness or intensity, David is praying for God to take care of the wicked who are persecuting him. You don't have the extended curses that we're going to look at in some of the other Psalms, but I, I think it's important to see that these are not. this is not a rare phenomenon in the Psalter. Uh, and if we're going to use the Psalter as our primary hymnal and are going to use the Psalms as our primary model for how to sing before the Lord, then um, prayers for judgment and curses against the wicked uh, seem to be uh, an essential part of that part of that repertoire. Peter, I think that's a really important point, and I'm so glad you started with that. Uh, in my own research and reckoning, maybe I'm a little bit more generous, but by my count, we have no less than 41 psalms that contain at least one imprecatory element, at, we, at least one uh, petition for just judgment upon the wicked. And that would put the proportion at greater than one in four psalms. So you really can't move through the psalms at all without encountering this type of language. But even there, uh, I think it's important to recognize that themes of judgment and even desires for judgment sometimes take the form of, uh, of speech other than outright explicit requests. So you've got past rehearsals of God's judgment, which oftentimes are held up as a paradigm for expected action in the present and future. You've got present declarations of God's character and status as the faithful one who keeps his promises, who judges the earth. You've got future-oriented declarations, confident assertions that God will certainly exercise justice in his cosmos. And all of those, I think, in, in the context of psalmic prayer, uh, do something similar to the outright imprecations, even if it's not an explicit request itself. They generate expectation and a desire to see God's justice manifested on the earth. Some of the strongest statements that we have of imprecation are also found outside of the book of Psalms. It's not an exclusive phenomena to the book of Psalms. So, for instance, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 19 and following, Hear me, O Lord, and listen to the voice of my adversaries. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for my life. Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children to famine. Give them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. May their men meet death by pestilence. Their youths be struck down by the sword in battle. May a cry be heard from their houses when you bring the plunderer suddenly upon them. For they have dug a pit to take me and laid snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their plotting to kill me. Forgive not their iniquity, nor blot out their sin from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. It's not something that we find um, only in the book of Psalms. 
elsewhere in scripture, there's this common um, call for God's justice and the celebration of justice when it occurs. I think we could argue that the song of the sea in um, Exodus chapter 15 is the nearest thing that Israel has to a sort of national anthem. It's rehearsed on a number of occasions in scripture. It's expressed in different forms in different contexts in Isaiah, in Revelation, in the Psalms. It's um, reworked in various ways. And that is a great celebration of the destruction of the Egyptians and the taking of many of their lives. Yeah, I like the way way both of you have put that, Alistair and Trevor. Did. A couple of things stand out to me. One is that uh, both of you emphasize the fact that these are acts of justice. Uh, that's what we're That's what we're asking for when we ask God to judge or curse the people that he's promised to curse. And also, uh, they're acts of justice of a just and faithful God. So Trevor, particularly, you were emphasizing the fact that this is a an expression of God's own character, and we're praying for God to act according to his, according to who he is. He's the judge of all the earth. So act like it. That's what, that's what the uh, imprecatory Psalms are doing. So that, again, kind of, imprecatory Psalms are often, often seen as kind of being way, way out on the fringes of the biblical uh, of the Bible and the fringes of the biblical imagination, but I think that both the fact that they're found throughout the Psalter and, as Alistair says, elsewhere, and the fact that they're rooted in the character of God Himself shows that these aren't these aren't uh, anomalies within the biblical within the Bible. These are expressions of of fundamental uh, biblical truths. That's right. If you want to get rid of the theology and the theological logic of the imprecatory psalms, you, you really have to dismiss Scripture's testimony about the character of God entirely. You have to dismiss what it says about the judge of all the earth who will certainly do right. You have to dismiss the curses that are contained in all of the, the covenant formulas that assert that those who are outside of God's blessing will certainly be judged and will be requited proportionately with what they deserve. The imprecatory psalms are fundamentally intertwined with all of the other narrative threads of the Old Testament. And so really to cut them out is to destroy the cloth totally. A slightly more subtle way in which imprecation and prayers for imprecation can be sort of cut out um, of the cloth, if you like, is, isn't so much trying to sort of get them out of the Bible, but just trying to remove them from the Christian's prayer book. So to say, you know, God will judge people sometimes, but it's not something we should actively request. Um, but even that then seems very strange. I mean, we presumably believe God does judge evil and it, it's good and, and right when he does. And so shouldn't shouldn't that then be something we want to be involved in in our prayer life? And wouldn't it be appropriate if God does that kind of thing in response to the anguished cries and prayers of many people who are, are grieving as a result of uh, human evil and of sin in the world? A comment that Jim Jordan made many, many years ago has stuck with me. He said that one of the reasons why Christians don't hunger and thirst for justice as Jesus encourages us to is because we don't have this regular diet of psalms. Given the uh, confusions today about the, what constitutes justice and the conflicts over what justice is in our own culture, Christians are often left at, kind of on the on their heels about that because we're not prepared to talk about justice in an open and 
confident way, partly because we've kind of removed that that whole uh, thread of the Bible from our prayers and uh, from our consciousness in some ways. It depends on what part of the church that you're in, but there's been a longstanding polemic against any notion of wrath, that God uh, expresses wrath, that that's, that's, that's not worthy of God. The scriptures say that regularly God expresses wrath, and that's again an expression of God's passion for justice. It's not secondary or, or tangential to who God is, that he is a wrathful God. He's, he's setting things right. So, you know, removing you know, removing that is uh, you know, it removes an important part of the biblical revelation of God, but it, it just it makes us ineffective and really passionless about the pursuit of justice, which we should be uh, that that should be as Jesus says, we should be hungering and thirst for it, thirsting for it. On that point, uh, I think we can all recognize that the liturgy of the church isn't merely expressive, but it's also formative. It doesn't just give voices to the desires we already have, but it creates an appetite for new desires. Uh, In an expressive individualistic culture where uh, we we naturally are shaped to conceive of justice as uh, not infringing upon the individual autonomous rights of the person, uh, we're already primed to recoil at notions of God's just uh, judgment that intervenes uh, to, in some ways, restrict the agency of the wicked. But when we excise the imprecatory psalms and other justice-oriented texts from the diet of the church, we're we're creating almost a positive feedback loop. Uh, Mm -hmm. If those prayers, uh, if those declarations of God's character are not part of the ritual worship of the church. We're forming people to have instincts that tell them, this is not part of the life of faith. Mm -hmm. This is not good. And how do I know that? Because functionally, we've never celebrated it together as God's people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, It's evident in some lectionaries that uh, either eliminate uh, imprecatory psalms or uh, make um, make the impre- imprecatory portions of Psalms uh, secondary or eliminate them. So yeah, the the di- the liturgical diet is uh, is impoverished by that. One way I think that we can be helped by Scripture in our use of the imprecatory Psalms and other material of the kind is the narrative um, situations within which um, these things are situated. So. For instance, the story of David being pursued by Saul or the experience of Jeremiah and the opposition that he faces or the story of the church and the opposition and martyrdom that it experiences. And what we see in a number of these cases is the imprecatory psalms are not the um, psalms or the prayers of first resort. They are things that are appealed to after a number of different other courses of action have been pursued. And they're appealed to in concert with other approaches. So David does not seek to take vengeance for himself. When he has the opportunity to take Saul's life, he does not do so. He prays for the justice of God, but yet he spares Saul in the cave. And also when he comes across him at night, um, he doesn't actually kill him when he has the chance. And in the same way, the church can use these imprecatory psalms 
not as a means of getting vengeance um, in a vindictive or vengeful way, but as an alternative to seeking private vengeance. It's seeking the justice of the Lord. Let's turn to thinking about uh, a few of these uh, specifically imprecatory psalms. And as I threatened before we started recording, I'm going to sing at least one of them. I'm going to chant uh, Psalm 58. This is from the Common Worship Psalter that uh, the Church of England produced a number of years ago. Uh, It's a complete chant psalter with a lot of uh, canticles in the back. It's uh, something I've used in different settings over the years. And I particularly, uh, I think Psalm 58 works really nicely because the the music fits the uh, threatening tone of the whole psalm. But Brian most doesn't have access to this. Otherwise, we would get Brian on here to actually do our singing for us. But uh, in his absence, I'm going to do this. So this is Psalm 58. Do you indeed speak justly, you mighty? Do you rule the peoples with equity? With unjust heart you act throughout the land. Your hands meet out violence. The wicked are estranged even from the womb. Those who speak falsehood go astray from their birth. They are as venomous as a serpent. They are like the deaf adder which stops its ear, which does not heed the voice of the charmers, and is deaf to the skillful weaver of spells. Break, O God, their teeth in their mouths. Smash the fangs of these lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. Let them wither like trodden grass. Let them be as the slimy track of the snail, like the untimely birth that never sees the sun. Be forever their pots feel the heat of the thorns. Green or blazing, let them be swept away. The righteous will be glad when they see God's vengeance. They will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked, so that people will say, Truly there is a harvest for the righteous. Truly there is a God who judges in the earth. And of course, the second half of that is the uh, the imprecation part, uh, starting with verse 6, break their teeth in their mouths, let them be like water that runs away, let them be like the slimy track of the snail uh, that are burned away and uh, like the untimely birth, like a, a stillbirth that never sees the sun. Uh, and then uh, maybe the more, most striking thing about the psalm is verse 10. The righteous will be glad when they see God's vengeance. They'll bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. But this is, this is, one, of the, uh, this is one of the imprecatory psalms that really stands out for its, the uh, intensity of its language. I mean, one of the questions we can ask here is, uh, what are the circumstances that uh, provoke this prayer? Who is the psalmist speaking against? I think that's a helpful thing to consider that... Um, these are described as dangerous predators. They're lions with fangs. They're um, also judges. They're described in the opening um, verse as "You gods who judge the children of do you judge the children of man uprightly?" Um, these are figures who are ruling over others in a predatory way, and as we um, see the damage that such figures can do. Um, in their injustice, they they are not just engaging in private wickedness. These are people who have um, who are destroying the flock as a result of their actions, and so this is an act. Judgment upon them is an act of protection for the 
flock, um, not just of um, a vengeful desire to see the wicked die for the sake of it. Yeah, some of the imagery brings that out quite explicitly, doesn't it? Tear out the fangs of the young lions. There's a, a, a removal of, of influence. Um, not only that, but that's certainly part of it. On that point about protecting the flock, I think I think that's right. We We need to expand our vision of what the effects of the violence of these unjust judges brings about. Uh, they are societal enemies, uh, not merely personal enemies. Their, their wickedness has rippling consequences throughout the land. Um, we, could, we could talk about them as a threat to the covenant community, uh, also as a threat to God's temple kingdom, to the people and the place uh, where and among whom God dwells in holiness. Uh, they not only militate against the peace of God's temple kingdom, against the blessedness that God's people are supposed to experience in his presence, but they're also a threat against the witness of uh, the temple kingdom of Israel as a light to the nations. They are a threat to the holiness of that temple kingdom and, and, and thus to the continued presence of God among them, and therefore to the continued prosperity and existence of the people as a whole in God's land. Uh, they are dealing out violence in the land, whereas Israel is to be a community that multiplies justice and holiness in the land. And I think it's interesting to contrast uh, verses uh, 1 and 2 and then 11. These are gods who deal out violence in the land, but the contrast is with God who surely judges on earth, who rewards the righteous. Uh, these are representatives of God's rule in Israel who are not executing their calling properly. And the psalmist is asking for the true God to judge rightly where these gods, these judges, have represented him wrongly. The imagery of verses 3 to 5 also suggests some serpentine character to them. These are um, venomous um, figures who are associated with the serpent. Jesus would use similar language in calling his opponents brood of vipers. And what's being expressed here in part is the original gracious work of God in establishing enmity between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Um, that the threat of the serpent, the destruction, the temptation, the misleading and the predation that they bring is opposed by the righteous seed of the woman. And so the Messiah and his people stand up to the seed of the serpent and oppose them in these imprecations that are bringing out something of that original enmity that God himself established. I think that's spot on. Uh, the, the Edenic and serpentine motifs are really manifold here. Not only are they called serpents, but they are estranged from the womb. They are wicked offspring. They deal out violence in the land of God's presence. Uh, the psalm in English translation says that they abuse the children of man. In Hebrew, that, that is sons of Adam. And uh, many commentators have noted that there's likely an allusion, a specific allusion to Genesis there uh, with this uh, serpentine oppressor making war against the sons of Adam. They trade in lies like the original serpent. 
they are the objects of head-oriented judgment in uh, verse 6, and the stomping feet of the righteous uh, participate in verse 10 in executing judgment upon them. Oftentimes, we have a hard time understanding how is it that uh, David or Israel with David could pray prayers like these. But when we read this sort of psalm, and I think this provides a lens for understanding the imprecatory psalms at large, when we read this through the lens of Genesis 3.15, uh, we see uh, a, a Davidic king and a people who are called to exercise royal priestly authority as the sons of God. They are to wage war against the serpent, and in so doing, subdue the enemy and protect God's temple kingdom, the place of his presence. And where the original Adam failed to drive out and judge the serpent, now by prayer, in Psalm 58, David and Israel with him are playing the part. They are driving out the serpents as the sons of God who are fulfilling their divinely appointed vocation. Great points. I, I wanted to add just one note. Uh, the, the public the public character of the setting, the political character of the setting with the gods, sons of men who are judging, gives a particular uh, spin or nuance to the to the lies that are spoken. These are these are not you know little white lies. These aren't uh, the the lies that uh, people tell to lubricate social occasions. These are these are lies of judges, uh, public lies, uh, false accusations. Uh, false judgments that are being pronounced that that are like poison uh, in the in the body politic, as it were. So uh, I think that again, that public and political character is important to see through through the whole psalm. Hmm. Alistair early mentioned, uh, sorry, earlier mentioned the um, way in which these imprecations are, are not a, a first port of call, but a, a last resort. And there seems to be in verses four and five here um, some allusions to. Um, a more gentle process that would restrain evil. So these particular serpentine figures have, have stopped their ears, so they no, no longer hear the, the voice of um, charmers. I think the exact terms here have to do with, with snake charmers and, and um, there's a, a word to do with wisdom as well. It, it feels like there are um, yeah more gentle means of, of restraining these, but those have failed and then the cry in, in verse six of oh god break their teeth um, goes out so there does seem to be this uh, progression in mind mm-hmm. even there that progression continues through verses uh, six to nine it starts with break the teeth in their mouths tear out their fangs this is this is a prayer for for god to incapacitate their the instruments of violence uh, in a sense, to interrupt or to cease uh, their ability to deal out violence in the land. That that prayer for that interruption, that they would no longer be able to accomplish their wicked schemes, precedes the prayer uh, for more um, immediate and drastic forms of judgment that follow it. There does seem to be a chiastic structure to this psalm, beginning with the false judgment of the uh, wicked gods and then ending with the true judgment of God. And then you have the wicked estranged from the womb balanced with the um, them being like the stillborn child that never sees the sun, that there'll be their wickedness will be stopped, stopped at that point. And then the illustration of the serpent with um, 
then being responded to with breaking the teeth in their mouths. Hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that uh, I think lies behind the this and maybe the reluctance of Christians to take up these kinds of prayers. Uh, David, David prays like this because he has a strong sense of who he is before God. Trevor, you've been, you've been using the language of uh, temple kingdom, uh, and he knows that he's the anointed one. He's the chosen king. And so an attack on him is, is an attack on God's purposes, uh, and he treats it as such. And I think Christians tend to be falsely modest about our status and not recognize that an attack on God's church is an attack on the bride of Jesus Christ, and that is something that Jesus takes very seriously. So there's a there's a kind of it's 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 not a pride because it's a completely con, it's a completely gifted status, but there's a confidence that we have a standing before God, and that we in a sense we we have well we we've been promised His protection, and so we have a right to almost demand that uh, God keep His promises. That's a point that I often try to emphasize when discussing the imprecatory psalms. We have to have an understanding of the narrative, the story of the universe in in God's recounting that uh, is couching all of these prayers. Uh, we have to understand that uh, we as, as believers are not merely human beings. We are not merely homo sapiens, but we are children of God sons and daughters of God who have been blessed with a divine calling and a vocation in God's narrative. And as we understand that vocation, as we embrace it, as we rely upon God's empowering promises, we will see that there is a way to pray these prayers that is not merely blind vindictiveness or a bloodthirsty hunger for revenge. Uh, but that is an embracing of our calling to be agents of God's justice in the world and to be those who take part in subduing the enemy and expanding his temple kingdom throughout the earth. One aspect of this that comes to the foreground in verse 11 at the very end is the way that the failure to have justice exercised executed upon the wicked, leads to a disheartening of people. Um, They don't believe that there is a moral order to the universe. The wicked are prospering and the righteous are not flourishing. And in that sort of situation, people can give up on the way of righteousness. But in a situation where the wicked are indeed judged, it leads to a more general encouragement of people in righteousness. Um, And for mankind in general, it is something that strengthens their confidence in the moral order of God's universe. And so this is not merely for the narrow purpose of dealing with these specific wicked people. It's dealing with the more general challenge um, to people's confidence in the moral order of God's cosmos. Yeah, that's a great point, Alistair. Should we move on to another psalm? Uh, we had uh, we had talked about uh Covering Psalm eighty-three a little bit. I don't have a I don't have a good chant for this, but uh, there's a good metrical version of Psalm eighty-three that uh, I I started singing years ago at uh, Biblical Horizons conferences, and uh, if I can call it to mind, I'm going to sing a verse or so. So again, 
Uh, you might want to mute me at this point, guys. Uh, here, I hope is the first verse. I don't have the I don't have the music in front of me, but I get I think I got the first verse memorized. Do not be silent, God, or unresponding. Do not remain at rest, O mighty one. For now your foes surround and make a clamor. Your bitter enemies lift up the head. Against you people now they plot in secret. They seek to work against your hidden ones. They say, let us go up and end their nation. The name of Israel shall be no more. Etc. If you can find that, it's in it's in the Cantus Christi, I think, and uh, uh, I don't know where the. It's also in the uh, the Covenanters Book of Psalms for singing, uh, but that's a a great version that has a kind of as you can hear it has a kind of lively uh, Hebraic sound to the music. Well, this is another one. The setting is different here. It's not talking about uh, rulers, uh, unjust rulers who are uh, preying on the weak. Uh, unjust rulers who are spreading lies, uh, serpent-like lies, uh, but instead it's about a, a um, an attack of nations against Israel. This is uh, quite explicitly a prayer for the people of God as they're being surrounded by closely related nations like Edom and the Ishmaelites, by kind of cousin nations by like Ammon, Amalek and uh, Ammon and Moab, by more distant nations. Assyria now has joined them. Uh, all these nations are coming against the people of God, and uh, the prayer uh, the, in the Psalm of Asaph is that the Lord would uh, turn them away. And uh, verses nine through twelve include a number of references to incidents in the book of a uh, book of Judges, and uh, the psalmist wants the Lord to do that again. Uh, he's he's done it before uh, to Sisera and to Zebens Almuni. He wants the same thing to happen again to these enemies. Here, the resonances with Psalm 2 are quite striking. In Psalm 2, one of the introductory psalms in the Psalter, we have the nations raging and taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Here, we have enemies making an uproar and consulting together, conspiring and making a covenant against God's people. With the very description of the enemies, it's it's quite interesting that as the as the psalm is pleading almost desperately for deliverance the framing of the enemy uh, in in the language of psalm 2 implicitly suggests a kind of hope and confidence we've already been told at the beginning of the psalter that the wicked will perish that god laughs at the raging and counseling together of the nations And this is part of a broader move in so many imprecatory psalms, that even as they are crying out for deliverance, the imagery that is used, uh, whether it's imagery of the serpent, whose head will certainly be crushed, uh, or elsewhere, uh, and the outright declarations that affirm God's certain and decisive action make the desperate pleas simultaneously confident assertions that God will certainly act. They are doing multiple things within the prayers at the same time, expressing longing, but bolstering hope. I was struck by the first verse, the way the whole psalm begins, in that it seems to um, presuppose where where God is asked not to keep silence, not to hold his peace. Um, 
that God's desire and uh, a good desire, obviously, is that he, he will judge these enemies, um, and that presently God is is holding back, um, is is restraining and being merciful, and that obviously underlines the points which we've made already that this isn't some um, bloodthirsty or, or spur of the moment cry for vengeance or, or, or something like that but um, this seems to have been something that has built up and, and uh, judgment which has been restrained for a, a long time and some of these enemies so um, Midian uh, we know they dominated Israel for seven years in the book of Judges and, and uh, Sisera and, and Jabin for 20 years and and so these are um, at least in some cases long periods uh, of oppression which are being brought to an end by God here. And the hope is not just that they be destroyed in um, verse 16 fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name O Lord. Um, the hope is that they would bow the knee but that can occur in submission to the lordship of um, Yahweh, or it can occur through subjugation under his might. Um, But the initial desire is that they would repent. Though it is less on the nose than in Psalm 58, I think that we can locate serpentine uh, descriptors of the enemies uh, in Psalm 83 as well. Uh, In verse 3, uh, we're told that they lay crafty plans, which harkens back to Genesis 3.1 and the serpent who is more crafty than any other beast of the field. Uh, They seek to wipe out the nation and name of Israel, which are precisely the things that the Abrahamic covenant promised to Abraham, a nation and a name. Uh, We're told that by opposing God's people, they oppose God. Interestingly, uh, many of the nations that are listed Uh, are elsewhere in the Old Testament associated with serpentine themes. So in uh, Balaam's oracle in Numbers 24, Edom, Moab, Amalek, and Asher are all mentioned in an oracle that centers on a king who breaks the nations and crushes the forehead of Moab. Uh, Famously in 1 Samuel 17, uh, Philistia's warrior is clad in armor made of scales. Goliath is a giant serpent who is opposing uh, God's people. And here we've got uh, enemy nations surrounding Israel, intruding into the land, seeking to dispossess the people of God from the land where God dwells and the land that he has given them. And even the prayers for positive action, that God would take action, draw upon stories that have we could say Genesis 3.15-esque themes. Uh, When Jabin and Sisera are are defeated, it's because Jael drives a peg into Sisera's temple. She has crushed the head of a serpentine intruder into God's land. Uh, The heads of Orev and Zeev are are presented to Gideon by the Ephraimites uh, when they are defeated. And the text tells us in Judges 8 that Midian is subdued to raise their heads no more. Uh, It is as if uh, the the story of the Old Testament uh, is moving through Judges and telling us that the serpent seed is continuing to try to intrude upon and corrupt 
the place of God's presence, and the people who dwell there. And Psalm 83 is hearkening back to God's skull-crushing, head-removing judgment in the past and praying, Lord, do that again to the crafty nations who are encroaching upon your land. Very good stuff. And as you said uh, in when we were discussing Psalm 58, Trevor, our prayers for this uh, link us up with Jesus' own head-crushing work. He's, he's the seed of the woman, the last Adam, who does crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and we're trampling down Satan under our feet. Uh, we're, the, we're the jail that's uh, helping to put the tent, uh, tent pig through Cicero's head. And we're doing that by praying. Uh, we're, we're sharing in that work by appealing to God to accomplish it. Related to that, Peter, one of the things I find with imprecatory psalms is that while in my uh, immediate experience, um, some of the statements there might not instantly resonate with me, they do bring to mind and cause me to pray much more for persecuted Christians um, all over the world. And um, obviously we are specific Christians at a specific time and and part of the world and, and our experiences uh, is shaped by that, but you know there, there are Christians who we're probably aware of and following in prayer letters and and so on who experience h- horrific things. And and one thing which imprecatory psalms do um, for me is cause me to think about them more, pray for them more, and and perhaps in in some way have my experiences um, brought in line with theirs a little bit more at least. James, on that point, it's interesting. We often run to the Psalms for comfort, to stabilize our world when it seems to be falling apart. Uh, and that is a, a valid uh, gift of God. It's, it is a, a beautiful resource that the Psalms provide. But to your point, uh, when our world is stable, the Psalter is also there to destabilize it and to show us that the comfort that we may be experiencing uh, is not a universal experience for God's creation and his people. And it alerts us to the gross reality of injustice that has infected God's cosmos. And it creates an urgency to be involved in uh, the inbreaking of justice, blessing, and shalom in the world. One of the things the imprecatory Psalms also do is preserve the category of the enemy. Um, in Christian thought. And so often we have softened our categories. We don't even speak about sin so much as brokenness or um, straying or something like that. We we lose a sense of the fact that there is a holy war going on. And we are called to struggle in that war against people who are truly seeking to destroy the kingdom of Christ. And that Christ is going to place his enemies under his feet, and he wants us to be part of that process. And yet, as we look in our society, is polite, um, the sort of polite people who don't want to um, misjudge people around us, who want to be um, decent, and um, the sort of people who are not pugnacious, we can avoid that category. We can try and step back and soften things to... Um, put sheaths on all of the uh, to sheath all of the swords of God's word that would actually push that particular point. Suggest that the wicked really can be God's enemies, 
that we, in fact, were the enemies of Christ when um, he gave himself for us. And the recovery of that that term and all of its offence, but also the true wonder of the gospel when seen against the backdrop of such a conflict um, is an absolutely necessary part of the reason why we do need to recover these psalms. Alistair earlier mentioned that Exodus 15, the song of the sea, is a celebration of God's judgment following uh, his work in the Exodus. It's interesting that though the allusions uh, are are less uh, obvious than the allusions to Judges 4 through 8, for example, in Psalm 83, there are allusions to Exodus 15. Uh, in that song, uh, Moses celebrates that God has shattered Egypt through the Exodus, which is a sort of vision that runs through multiple psalms, uh, uh, celebrating the Exodus as the crushing of Rahab's head, this serpentine enemy of, of God's people. Uh, in that song, uh, Edom, Moab, and Philistia are explicitly mentioned towards the end as being dismayed as Israel is led to be planted on God's sanctuary mountain. It's showing us that his work of judgment in the Exodus is all oriented toward planting a people to bear fruit in his presence. And that's the logic of of Psalm 83 as well. Uh, A coalition of nations headlined by Edom, Moab, and Philistia are, are prayed and petitioned that they be dismayed forever so that God's people may remain planted on his sanctuary mountain so that the enemy will not be able to frustrate God's purposes to have a people for himself who dwells in holiness in his glorious presence. Your mention of celebration, Trevor, seems important to me. The last psalm we looked at spoke about the righteous rejoicing, and it seems to me that if we're going to respond rightly to what God is doing in the world around us and uh, have the appropriate reaction to it, then we're going to have to know when God is acting in in judgment and when he's not. And I'm not saying that's always uh, easy to discern, but in some instances in in Scripture, the the response to some apparent disaster um, isn't necessarily lament, um, but is rejoicing when the kingdoms of the wicked topple or, or, you know, the hallelujah chorus in, in Revelation, for instance, is, is rejoicing. And I, I feel like certainly if, if we're not regularly dwelling on these kind of, of psalms, then we, we're not going to experience the sense in which uh, those acts of God are responses to the prayers of, of thousands, of, of millions of saints over, over the ages. And we're not therefore going to respond to them in, in the correct emotional way. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.